Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. We have a different guest each week, and today my guest is Joseph Pierce, noted biographer, a Shakespeare scholar. He lectures around the world on Shakespeare, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, all the great English writers. Welcome to More Christianity. It's good to be here. Today, Joseph, we're going to discuss one of your best books and one of your favorite topics, and that is Literary Converts. The great writers in England who converted to the Catholic faith. Where do you want to start? Well, in the bigger history of, of England, of course, you have the 150 years of persecution when the Catholics have been put to death in the 1530s to the 1680s. Then have a period of another 150 years where people aren't being put to death, but there's still all sorts of laws restricting Catholic involvement in public life. And then in 1829, we have Catholic emancipation, just before Victoria comes to the throne. And then the definitive moment, I think, for the for the beginning of the Catholic revival is the conversion of John Henry Newman, now blessed John Henry Newman, into the Catholic Church in 1845. That's, that's the definitive beginning of what would be a, a, an absolutely scintillating period in English history of the Catholic revival. So really, to put this in its bigger perspective, around the 1520s with Henry VIII, we see the beginning of the English Reformation, the break from the Catholic Church. And it's not until the 1820s, you're saying, that it's finally permitted to be fully a Catholic, to have the Catholic hierarchy, to be able to go to Mass, to build churches, and so forth. So for 300 years in England, to a greater or lesser extent, Catholics were being persecuted. Yes, almost persecuted out of existence, and I have a great deal of respect for those recusant families that stay true to the faith for 300 years of relentless persecution. You think about that. I mean, that's a long time, generation so, after generation after generation. But you know, but basically the Catholic population through this relentless persecution had been shrunk to a question of a few tens of thousands by the time of Catholic emancipation. So when you say recusant families, you're referring to families who had the means, the wealth, Wealth, uh, the land to be able to just secretly remain Catholics? Where did they educate their children? How did they keep the, keep the faith? Well, many of them were, were homeschooled, as one might expect. The wealthier families would also send their children abroad to get an education on the continent. But yes, Oxford and Cambridge were excluded. Catholics were not allowed to study at Oxford and Cambridge for that, that period of 300 years. So yes, the wealthy families, the ones that were fine, but then you know they had their servants and the parts of England, such as the areas around Preston in Lancashire, where a large portion of the population remained Catholic in defiance of the, uh, the dominant culture for that whole period of 300 years. So then in 1829, finally, um, it becomes legal and possible to be an Englishman and to be Catholic. And at that point, a kind of floodgate opened up, didn't it? When you travel around England, if you know how to read your architects, you see... Catholic churches, convents, monasteries that are suddenly springing up, being built uh, at the end of the 1800s when suddenly it's possible to be Catholic again. And also, this is the time of the notable Catholic convert, blessed John Henry Newman. Well, you mentioned the these new Catholic churches being built when it became legal again after 300 years to build Catholic churches. Many of these were built in the uh, in the start of the Gothic Revival, and the leader of the Gothic Revival was Augustus Pugin, who was one of the first converts in this new Catholic Revival. It was a trickle. But then when Newman converts in 1845, it becomes a flood. If you like, in John Henry Newman's wake, uh, it almost becomes fashionable in the highest echelons of English society to become a Catholic. So we have we have this intellectual flourishing of this new blooded Catholicism. 
And John Henry Newman himself, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with him, is a man who's brought up in an evangelical Protestant household. I, I loved reading his story and finding that as a boy, he would go down to the beach and hand out gospel tracts, and he would witness to people. He was a real evangelical in his boyhood. He goes to Oxford. He becomes one of the leading intellectuals of his day, and he rises right to the top of Oxford's intellectual society. He's a fellow of Oriel College. He's appointed to the university church as an Anglican priest. This is one of the highest appointments in, in the Anglican church with uh, intellectual prestige and status. He's established. He's, he's reached the top of the top. And then he does the unthinkable and, and becomes a Catholic. Now, we have to remember as well that although Catholicism was legal, it was not the done thing. Uh, if you were in the Anglican establishment, to become a Catholic meant that you would still be blacklisted, you'd be alienated from friends, you would be an outcast. What happened to him after he, he became a Catholic? Well, he was very largely ostracized by the Anglican hierarchy and by the Anglican culture. He became an outsider, he became an exile in that sense, an intellectual exile within his own country. But you know, but he wrote some some marvelous works. I mean, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, his autobiography, his conversion story, is in my in my opinion the greatest uh, conversion story ever written, other than Augustine's Confessions. I mean, it's a a, a marvelous work. He wrote a, a novel called Loss and Gain, which again is about someone's conversion to Catholicism. He wrote wonderful poetry, very important works of philosophy and theology. So an absolute giant, and really that first period of the of the Catholic revival in England from 1845. Newman's conversion until his death in 1890, that period of 45 years, is the Newman period because he was the giant presiding over that illustrious period in, in history. He's one of those characters, a bit like C.S. Lewis, in that he has this razor-sharp mind, an outstanding intellect, really one of the greatest Catholic theologians in, in the modern age. And at the same time, he's got heart. He's a man with very close friendships, a deeply affectionate man, a man who writes his theology with real passion, a real tenderness and a real sweetness to his devotion to our Lord and his friends. In every way, he's a sort of prototypical evangelical Catholic. <laughs> he's got that fervor for the Lord and that sweetness uh, of devotion. Uh, and yet, uh, again, as I say, a, a beautiful writing style and a, and a, and a razor-sharp intellect. And you mentioned C.S. Lewis. I think another parallel, which is a very, a very moving one, a touching one, is the way that both of them wrote thousands of letters. They saw it as part of their postulates, basically replied to everybody who wrote to them. Right. And Newman spent a large part of his life just writing letters to strangers and to unknown people as part of his apostolate. And that's a man who loves his fellow man because he could have spent his time just worried about the rich and the famous and the powerful. But if an ordinary working class person wrote to him, he would reply. And same with Lewis, who would get up early in the morning to deal with his correspondence, as he said, and, and handwriting letters to strangers from America, children who were writing questions about Narnia, bereaved widows, sometimes cranks and uh, weirdos and unusual people, but taking them all seriously and writing them very cordial and, and very intelligent and, and witty. A, and, this and, is and, a uh, genuine Christian love for neighbor, yeah. which we see in both Newman and Lewis. Interesting point. Of course, one of the great literary figures influenced by Newman is the great poet and convert, the Jesuit priest, Gerard Manley Hopkins. What can you tell us about Hopkins? Well, Hopkins is, in my judgment, the judgment of many, the most important poet of the Victorian period. Now, considering that what Chesterton called the Victorian age in literature is arguably the golden age, uh, with the possible exception of Elizabethan England, with William Shakespeare, etc., the Victorian age in literature is a golden age. Well, to talk about someone being the greatest poet of that golden age is something very special. He's one of the greatest poets in the English language ever. Now, he was um, a convert to the faith. 
He was received into the Catholic Church in 1866 by John Henry Newman himself. He went on to become a Jesuit priest, so following the noble tradition of the English martyrs, uh, such as St. Robert Southwell, another great poet, of course, and then went on, as well as being a Jesuit priest, to write this marvellous, wonderful poetry, which wasn't even published during his own lifetime. And it was 30 years after his death it's published and then becomes basically, along with T.S. Eliot, the most important poet of the 20th century. And Hopkins probably not published during his, his lifetime because his poetry is so innovative and, and radical. We have writers from that same Victorian time period, Wordsworth and so forth, who are probably, well, they're very conventional in their approach compared to Hopkins, who marches in with a totally unique vision and a totally refreshing and invigorating style with his sprung rhythm and with his amazing use of language and alliteration and and rhyme, turning the language upside down. And yet in his own personal life, as I remember, he's really quite lonely He's been ostracized by friends and family because of his decision to become a Catholic. He's not understood by his Jesuit superiors and, and confreres. He's stuck out in the country in a, in a in a lonely place where he suffers from depression. All of that contributes to his genius, doesn't it? Absolutely. And we do need to remember that, that uh, as, as is often the case, that, that so-called innovation is really a rediscovery of tradition that the modern culture has forgotten. So, for instance, sprung rhythm is looking at the rhythm of human speech. It's looking at the rhythm of nursery rhymes. It's looking at the rhythm of Gregorian chant, of Anglo-Saxon poetry, Welsh poetry. And his, you know, his ideas of inscape were all rooted in, in scholastic philosophy, the ideas of medieval philosophers such as Duns Scotus. So it all seemed very new to Victorian England because the Victorian England England had forgotten its Catholic past, but all that Hopkins had done is, is tapped into that Catholic past, brought it forth into Victorian culture, and shocked them all, surprised them all with the brilliance of something which they had completely forgotten about. So Hopkins is really, as you say, bringing forth and refreshing uh, some truths which had been lying there dormant for a long time. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is my friend Joseph Pierce. Joseph and I are leading a pilgrimage to England, June 2015. We're going to be visiting the sites of the English martyrs and also the sites of these great literary converts. We invite you to join us. If you'd like more information, go to my website, dwightlongenecker.com. Go to the contact page, drop me a line, and we'll send you some information so that you might be able to join us on this tour, combining a, an interest in the Catholic martyrs and also the great literary converts. You can join me and Joseph Pierce on that tour. June 2015, get in touch with my website, dwightlongenecker.com. Joseph, after Gerard Manley Hopkins' uh, wonderful poetry and his link with John Henry Newman, we jump forward then, and now we're facing a new kind of Catholic literary revival, a whole stream of, of uh, brilliant minds, creative intellects are coming into the Catholic Church sooner or later. I'm thinking of Oscar Wilde, whose conversion was later rather than sooner, and yet you've written a biography of Wilde, and the Catholicism was always there, wasn't it, lurking from his childhood onward as a kind of hound that was chasing him, if you like. Yeah, I mean, Wilde's deathbed conversion in 1900 heralds the 20th century, and, and as you say, this whole stream of significant literary converts that follow in his wake. But it's a mistake to think that Wilde discovers Catholicism on his deathbed. He had a lifelong love affair for the Catholic Church. In fact, his deathbed conversion was, if you like, the consummation of that lifelong love affair. He almost converted as an undergraduate in Dublin. He almost converted again as an undergraduate in Oxford. There were other times after that where he got very close. When he was released from prison, he expressed a desire to uh, to enter a monastery. So this was a lifelong love affair, which of course, because of his other problems, never came to fruition until his deathbed. But he made a beautiful death. 
Another writer from about the same time period who's not a convert himself, but the child of converts is Francis Thompson. How does that connect in with, with this whole network of wonderful Catholic writers? Francis Thompson is one of the most important poets of the last 150 years. G.K. Chesterton was a great admirer. He called Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, one of the greatest religious poems ever written. Thompson's a very interesting, fascinating character. He's a, if you wanted to be uncharitable, you'd call him a loser. I mean, he went to study for the priesthood and dropped out. He went to study at medical school to become a surgeon and dropped out. He ends up being an opium addict, a drug addict, and homeless on the streets of post-Dickensian England, actually on the streets befriending prostitutes at the same time that uh, Jack the Ripper is going around killing them. So we, we have this backdrop, and yet he's one of the most marvelous Christian poets that the English language has ever produced. So there's this great drama in the life and times of Oscar Wilde and Francis Thompson, these men who are, as I suppose, as Wilde himself would say, they were lying in the gutter, but they were gazing at the stars. And then we've got uh, G.K. Chesterton, who's almost the opposite. He's a playful child right through his life almost, uh, with an irrepressible sense of humor and cheerfulness and a kind of purity as well. There was an incident, I think, in his early life, wasn't there, where he tiptoed around the dark murkiness of the occult and the dark murkiness of, of decadence and the Oscar Wilde and kind of decadence that was there. But he just left it. He said that, you know, he was not, not attracted by it. Can you comment on, on Chesterton's personality, especially as our friend Dale Alquist reminds us the cause for his, his sainthood has been opened? Absolutely, which is, of course, a, a cause for joy for all those such as myself who not only are great admirers of Chesterton, but in my case, certainly, and I know I'm one of many, that owe my conversion under grace to Chesterton more than to anybody else. So, of course, the, the news that the Chesterton's causes is being studied by Rome is, is a great cause for joy. But yes, Chesterton reacted against the decadence of the 1890s, and much of his early work in the first years of the 20th century is really a recoiling from that. I mean, The Man Who's Thursday, for instance, it's very dark work, but that's it, because it's looking for the silver lining to the cloud of decadence. And what he rediscovered, of course, is that childlikeness is rooted in innocence and humility and gratitude. And gratitude and humility are at the heart of all true perceptions of life. Because as soon as we lose gratitude and humility, we are blinded by our own pride and prejudice. And so he allows us to see clearly through the eyes of gratitude, through the eyes of humility. And that's something that was very needed in those days in the wake of the decadent movement, and also very needed in these days in this new decadence that we are, we are living under. My guest today is Joseph Pierce, an expert in the great English writers, especially those who are Catholics and Catholic converts. That's our discussion point today. Joseph, you mentioned G.K. Chesterton, and of course there's this great friendship with Morris Baring and with Hilaire Belloc. It was George Bernard Shaw, I think, who called them the Chester Belloc. What was that all about? Yeah, Bernard Shaw, one of his wittiest essays, uh, dubbed the, the term Chester Belloc to sort of, if you like, lampoon the fact that Chesterton and Belloc were so much alike in their beliefs that they were, they were two halves of a pantomime elephant. To our American audience, they may not necessarily know what a pantomime elephant is. Pantomime horse, of course, is, uh, is something in, in English sort of comedy on the stage where the front half of the horse is that man standing up and the back half is the man kneeling down. So it's two men dressed up as a horse. Well, the pantomime elephant is the fact, of course, Chesterton and Belloc were both somewhat large. So they, they were seen as a beast, as a single beast, if you like, working in union. They were working in union, but Belloc was, to use one of your puns, bellicose. He was kind of a, a warrior for the faith, wasn't he, and was known to stand up and speak his mind and fight the good fight and take on the enemies. Whereas Chesterton, how did he do battle? 
Shaw's being too simplistic. Belloc and Chester, in many ways, were very, very different. They were united in their defense of the faith and the writings to defend the faith. But Belloc was much more, uh, yes, bellicose, much more bad-tempered. He was fighting to win and didn't mind if he bruised or, or, or drew blood from his enemies in doing so. Chester was much more charitable. So he was more interested in winning his opponent to his side rather than winning the argument. And I think Chesterton's charitability as opposed to Belloc's bellicosity to uh, succumb not merely to, uh, to puns but to alliteration shows the difference between the two. And when Chesterton died, Belloc actually wrote a wonderful little pamphlet about Chesterton's place in the English letters. And he said that Chesterton didn't fight to win and sometimes that impacted his rhetoric negatively. But he said he's in heaven, which is more important. <laughs> so that was a tribute Belloc paid to Chesterton. I invite you to get more information about the tour, which Joseph Pierce and I will be conducting June 2015. We'll be going to England together with some friends. Come and join us. Get information from my website, dwightlongeneckard.com. Joseph, we're going to leapfrog now from Belloc and Chesterton. The next big writers who follow on from them that I can think of who were converts, of course, are two troubled and problematic men in many ways, Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene in the middle of the 20th century. You know, they're, both of them were troubled souls. Graham Greene, I know, was an adulterer, and he didn't exactly live in a love-hate relationship with the Catholic Church, but he was in and out, wasn't he? <laughs> Always sort of testing the water with a toe and then running away and coming back again. Evelyn Waugh as well, a convert to the faith and a passionate convert to the faith and a firm believer, and yet in his personal life, not always golden. Yeah, I think we have to, as well as accepting the similarities in their, in their troubledness, if you like, we also have to, I think, accentuate the differences. For Graham Greene, he lived most of his life, I think we can probably say without being too judgmental, in a state of mortal sin, in the sense that he deserted his wife. And these are, these are all facts that not only are, are verifiable, but that Greene himself confessed to and admitted, and even writes about in his novels. In The Quiet American, he actually gives a graphic description of the, the last look he, he sees of his wife looking out the bedroom window as he's leaving her, as he's deserting her and the children. They had children. And he alludes to this in the, in the character of Fowler in, in The Quiet American. So he deserts his wife and children, has a series of, of mistresses throughout his life, right up until old age, but never ever manages to break away from Catholicism. He refuses to live it. There's a wonderful story when he's at, at Mass, Mass celebrated by um, St. Padre Pio, and he's towards the front. He can actually see the congealed blood from, from the stigmata on Padre Pio's hands. And he has the opportunity to meet Padre Pio afterwards, and he physically runs away. Hmm. Uh, and when asked why, he says, well, if I met a real-life saint, I'd have to change my life. But then having done that, he then carries a picture of Padre Pio around in his wallet for the rest of his life. This shows the contradictions at the heart of Graham Greene. Right. And I think the key thing about his novels, which we have to remember, it's not the doubt in Graham Greene's novels, because Graham Greene's novels are always full of doubt, a religious doubt. It's not a doubt, it's the doubt about the doubt that gives it the depth, and that's what's really brilliant about Graham Greene, is that yes, he, he presents the doubt, but then deeper, there's always the doubt about the doubt, and really, you come back to it, no, it's, the doubt's wrong. <laughs> and Evelyn Waugh? Even in war, again, you know, his big problem, I think, was uh, was a lack of a lack of charity towards neighbour. He was somewhat catty, should we say, but, you know, he remained true to his wife, and uh, he had a large family. He was certainly remained absolutely true to the doctrines of the church, very firmly, and understood them, was very eloquent in the defense. He was very frustrated with Graham Greene's uh, dabblings with the, the diabolical side. Someone said to Evelyn Waugh, well, you know, you're a, a Catholic convert, he said, but you're not a very nice man, are you? 
because of the way you behave. And he said, well, think how much worse I would be if I wasn't a convert. <laughs> I can remember one story when I was at uh, Downside Abbey, which is where Evelyn Wall sent his sons to school. And he was at that time a well-known novelist. And one of the boys from the literary club thought he would write to this famous novelist and to come to speak to the literary club. And Evelyn Wall wrote a, a snippy reply back saying to this young man, I am Evelyn Wall. I am not invited. I invite. <laughs> At which point, this schoolboy, to give him his credit, wrote back to Mr. Wall saying, thank you very much for inviting us. 25 of us will be coming for tea next Thursday. <laughs> and how did he respond to that? He, he actually enjoyed the joke and he welcomed them and apparently was very gracious and, and uh, gave them a very nice talk about liter- literary things and, and writing. Uh, how do you think Chesterton and that generation of English Catholic writers influenced these two novelists? Well, greatly, in actual fact, Graham Greene remained an admirer of Chesterton throughout the whole of his life. In fact, when he was an old man, Graham Greene said that he, if he were to put The Wasteland and The Ballad of the White Horse, so T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, and The Ballad of the White Horse by Chesterton side by side, he almost begins to say that, he, that Chesterton's is better, but he says, but at any rate, I read Chesterton's much more often. And War, of course, in his greatest novel, Thrice Head Revisited, takes uh, a line from one of Chesterton's Father Brown stories, where Father Brown talks about God can allow a sinner to go to the end of the world and still bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. And the phrase of twitch upon the thread becomes a metaphor for God's grace working in the lives of the characters in, in War's novel, Thrice Head Revisited. So Chesterton was a huge influence on those two writers, as he was indeed a huge influence on the, on the generation that followed him. So a huge influence, of course, on C.S. Lewis, who came after those other writers, never actually converted to the Catholic faith, but good friends, of course, with Tolkien, who was a devout Catholic. And Chesterton's influence on, on Lewis was such that actually Lewis attributed his conversion to Christianity to, to Chesterton, didn't he? When Lewis first read uh, Chesterton, he was in the uh, army during the First World War, and he was an atheist. And he couldn't help liking Chesterton in spite of Chesterton's Christianity. And then a few years later, in the mid-1920s, when he read Chesterton's uh, The Everlasting Man, he wrote that I saw the Christian outline of history laid out before me for the first time in a way that made sense. And we should say also, of course, we mentioned Tolkien. Tolkien was also hugely influenced by Chesterton. In his famous essay on fairy stories, he talks uh, on more than one occasion about the influence of Chesterton on, on, on his thought. So if you like Chesterton, who's seeking to win people to his side rather than win the argument, goes on to win certainly C.S. Lewis to his side and thereby gains a huge amount of um, borrowed glory, I suppose, because uh, all the multitudes who have been influenced by Lewis are really being influenced by Chesterton. Absolutely. And when the two great Catholic writers who were instrumental in Lewis's conversion from atheism to Christianity were, were Chesterton in the first instance and then Tolkien, because uh, in September 1931, C.S. Lewis had a, what he called a long night talk with Tolkien, after which, for the first time, he declared himself to be a Christian. So if it wasn't for Chesterton, if it wasn't for Tolkien, we wouldn't have had Lewis's conversion to Christianity. And without Lewis's conversion to Christianity, we, of course, would not have had all those marvelous works. So yes, there is a, there is a reflected glory for both Chesterton and Tolkien in the great works of C.S. Lewis. And isn't this just a lesson to us about how our Lord's providence works its way through history? Everything's connected when you're a Catholic. And when you read back through history, as we've just done in a, a, a quick tour through English literary history, starting with the tragic events with Henry VIII and the break from Rome, and yet out of those terrors, out of those trials, come all these fantastic thinkers, these intellects, these 
poets and novelists, that these creative men, some of them tortured, some of them great sinners, not necessarily saints, but blessed with the genius of, of creativity and insight, blessed with the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the wisdom and to be able to share that through fiction, through poetry, bringing the truth to life. This is one of the marvelous things I see in tracing this history, and you've done so well in your book, Literary Converts, where you actually give us a chapter in each one of these men, and you show how one influences the other, and it's, it's kind of like dominoes ticking off and radiating down into our age. What do you think is the influence of these writers today? It's very difficult in a contemporary scene sometimes to pick out who the influential writers are, which ones are really making a difference, and which ones are really changing the culture and are going to leave a permanent mark. But where do you see some of the footprints of Chesterton and Lewis and Tolkien in the popular culture today? I'll answer that briefly in just a moment. I just want to take one step back because there's a chapter in my book, Literary Converts, called A Network of Minds. And uh, what we need to understand is the role of providence here and the way we influence each other through what we do, what we say, what we write. There's a network of minds, there's also a network of grace. And the Catholic Literary Revival was at precisely that, a network of minds, a network of grace, energizing each other. And that's what we're called to do today, of course. That's uh, hopefully what you and I are trying to do. And what all Catholics and all Christians should be trying to do is to energize the culture in which we live. And so to get to your second question, I think we're living in a dumbed-down culture now, a culture where people no longer know how to think or read. And the civilization is really rooted in what remains of Christendom, which is still dynamic. And I think that the new cultural revival in the 21st century, literary, artistic, music, will come from a revitalized, renewed Catholicism that's responding to the secular fundamentalism of the age in a very vibrant fashion, as Shakespeare did in similar times. Newman also lived in very anti-Catholic times. Chesterton, you know, you only have to read his works to see how anti-Catholic the atmosphere was in which he was writing and working. So the church at its best is responding to the world at its worst, and we're living in a time now where the world is pretty much being pretty bad. And I think that's going to be a great opportunity for a new Catholic cultural revival in the 21st century. Because if you like, when the darkness is greater, the light is even more bright. And the more and more people realize they're living in the dark, as Hilaire Belloc said, outside the church is the night and strange things in the night. As the night gets darker, the church will seem brighter. My guest today is Joseph Pierce. Just as we go on here, there's one other little detail about a literary convert that Star Wars fans are going to be fond of hearing, and that is that the actor Alec Guinness, who plays, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars films, he was part of that circle too, wasn't he? He was friends with Evelyn Wall, and I think he was, a, of course, a Catholic convert. Actually, if you have time, I'd like to make a little confession, because a little story about Sir Alec Guinness in my own life, which says something about him. I have to confess that my chapter on Sir Alec Guinness in Literary Converts is largely based upon his own book, his own conversion story, Blessings in Disguise. So his agent got on to me and basically says, you owe me this amount of money because you used more than you should have done and quoting from it. So I put my hands up and said, what can I say? So I sent a check to his agent. And about a week or two later, I get, I get a letter back personally from Sir Alec Guinness with a nice, neat scissor cut for the check. <laughs> saying he thoroughly enjoyed literary converse, couldn't think about taking the money. Joseph, thanks for being here on More Christianity.